0: You're tuned to WFHB, volunteer-powered, listener-supported
1: community radio for South Central Indiana.
0: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Noel Herhusky Schneider,
1: and I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB local news for Wednesday. June 7th, 2023.
0: Later in the program, we have Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. More in today's feature report.
1: Also coming up in the next half hour, banks and double checks on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. More following today's feature. But first, your local headlines.
0: This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into trees in Monroe County, what trees we have, what benefits they provide, which trees to root for and which to root out.
1: This week, we spoke with social ecological systems scientist Sarah Mincy, who works as a clinical associate professor at Indiana University and director for the integrated program in the Environment and IU Research and Teaching Preserve, and is the managing director of the Environmental Resilience Institute. Mincy talked about her background as an educator and researcher.
2: I'm a faculty member in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs, where I teach urban forest management and I teach sustainability research methods. Um, I'm also the managing director for the Environmental Resilience Institute at IU, and I direct the Integrated Program in the Environment, which is um, several academic programs that are uh, interdisciplinary, focused on the environment and sustainability. And as a part of the Integrated Program in the Environment, we manage the research and teaching preserve at Indiana University. Um, my, my other role in the community is I am the uh, co-founder and vice president of the board of Canopy Bloomington, which is a new nonprofit that's focused on increasing tree canopy cover in an equitable way across the city of Bloomington.
1: Mincy shared that her favorite tree in Monroe County is an old bur oak located on Indiana University's campus in front of the Indiana Memorial Union.
2: In the city of Bloomington, we have a number of beautiful old uh, trees. Some of them are on public lands um, that that anyone can access. I am aware of, the, the, in some of our parks, we have um, really some old trees that, that are beautiful. But the, the one, I guess, one of my favorites is the um, uh, the oak that's in front of the IMU uh, on campus, right? Um, this is uh, uh, Corcus macrocarpa, right? It's a beautiful, beautiful oak. And uh, it's, it's common name is bur oak and it's, uh, it's probably nearing the end of its life. Um, we have, the university landscape team has been managing that tree so carefully and so so beautifully over the last, uh, you know, years. I know there are plans to actually um, come in and, and use some structural support on some of the larger limbs and th- that, that's gonna be installed in the coming months, I suspect. Um, but it's it's just such a testament to the history of the campus itself because of how large and stately it is, and the fact that it's at this entryway to the Indiana Memorial Union, um, which represents so much, right? About the university community—that is a place that we come together and we convene, regardless of department or major or area of study. Um, it's students, faculty, and staff use that space, and and I think that that's sort of a beautiful representation of of what the uh, the oak stands for, right? It's it's there, um, it, giving everyone who is in its presence benefits, you know. Equally, right? They, it's it's sort of, um, you know, this this common good that we all share in in the shade of a big tree like that and the beauty of a big tree like that. Um, so it's sort of a nice symbol to what I think the, the university is about in many ways.
1: Mincy discussed the relationship between tree canopy cover and socioeconomic characteristics in cities. She highlighted that a lack of tree canopy cover in an area is often an indicator that the demographics in that area have been marginalized communities over time.
2: There have been numerous studies that have looked at the relationship between tree canopy cover and the socioeconomic or demographic uh, characteristics of communities in cities. Um, some of those studies have not found any kind of relationship that was significant, Um but most of those studies have found that there is a negative correlation uh, between canopy cover and um, an income, so that we see in lower income communities and communities that are um, uh, minority uh, ethnicities and race that there is lower canopy cover. We know that from a meta-analysis of all of these studies that that have been done over the last couple of decades in uh, across the United States, focused on on these questions. Now, of course, across the studies, um, there there were different um, measurements of, of of a treed area or a green area, and there were ver- there were a variety of uh, measurements of what we mean by you know socioeconomic factors. Um, but in general, the, the researchers, uh, Watkins and Garish in 2018, they they did this meta-analysis and they found in general, there is this relationship. Um, a lot of that has to do with history and legacy on the landscape. In communities across the country, uh, there, there was in the 1930s, a practice of the Homeowners Loan Corporation to uh, exclude black and brown people, immigrants, um, and and other marginalized communities from the ability to get a a home mortgage. And this is a practice known as redlining. People will probably be familiar with that term and have heard a little bit about that. Essentially, areas of cities were categorized ABCD or by color, and the red communities, the, the redlined areas were those that were uh there were these racist policies in place don't give mortgages to the to these these folks they're um they're not likely to be able to uh you know pay us back was the was the belief and the philosophy and and now we of course recognize that this is just simply racist perspective um the underinvestment in those communities that then follows because people can't own homes there uh, means that there is this legacy on on the landscape of uh, fewer fewer trees in the public lands um, and often also on private lands as well. You know, and then and then of course that's one example of a of a very clear direct uh, policy impact on the landscape. But you can imagine also other reasons outside of the the whole history, right? That homeowners, loan corporation history, you can imagine other uh, uh, racist strategies that have been implemented across cities in the United States that would have left uh, folks who are lower income or minority communities with lack of public investment. And it does take money and it takes people, it takes human resources and financial resources to manage trees in the city so that they are actually quality trees that are producing ecosystem services and benefits. And if we don't invest in that management, um, we have pests, we have pathogens, we have development that removes those trees uh, over time, and you tend to have less canopy cover. What does that mean for those communities? Well, it means that they not only don't have, you know, tree structure around them, but they also don't have the benefits that come from trees.
1: Mincy delved into the benefits that trees provide to communities, which range from economic, mental, physical, and social advantages. She also spoke to the tree cover inequity in Bloomington and ongoing efforts to address it.
2: They include everything from shading your home and decreasing the electricity and heating uh, costs and pooling costs of your home. They include helping filter the air and water. uh, So when they improve water quality, they create um, the the ability for us to manage stormwater. Their canopies capture precipitation as it's coming down and it means less of that precipitation hits the ground and runs off quickly. So we have fewer flash floods when we have canopy cover. But then we move into the, the, all of the um, economic benefits of trees beyond helping you save money on cooling. They also can just increase property value, right? If you have a well-maintained tree on a property, the property value is higher. That's what studies show us. Um, trees outside of windows, you know, in, in uh, some studies have improved students' uh, learning. They pr- improve worker productivity. They improve uh, patient health outcomes, um, so we know that there are mental and emotional and physical health impacts from trees. So, um, and then there's a beautiful area of work that I'm, I've, I've been involved in, which looks at how people interact differently in environments where there are trees. If we have an environment outside that's sunny and hot, well, maybe neighbors aren't going to come outside and get together and get to know one another And getting to know one another means you're more able to work together and you build trust and reciprocity and you can do collective action together. If you don't have those environments for social interaction, there are some studies that show that we we don't build collective um, capacity in a community. Um, So there are social benefits to having urban forests as well. Um, So so again. Structure leads to function, right? So, if you don't have the trees, you don't have those functions that I was just talking about. So, studies, again, across the US have shown this relationship. In Bloomington, um, we also see some of these kinds of relationships where we have, uh, there are, are particular areas across the city uh, with uh, lower canopy cover that are also lower income communities and otherwise marginalized communities. Um, so, there is tree cover inequity in the city of Bloomington. Um, and so there have been efforts to, uh, to attempt to, to correct that. I know that our uh, city government is aware of that from a 2019 uh, report that was produced by Davy Resource Group Consulting Group that, that came in and looked at the canopy cover across the city. Um, there are researchers at IU that I'm involved with. A lot of my own research has focused on this. And then there's this new organization, Canopy Bloomington, and their mission is to help to um, increase the equity of canopy cover across the city. So working in those areas where we have lower canopy and lower income communities um, to plant trees and, and improve the canopy cover over time.
1: She went further into how we should address tree inequity. Mincy outlined that it takes public investment, but also establishing relationships with underserved communities. She touched on some of the nuances involved in addressing tree inequity.
2: We know that you can't just walk into a community and start planting trees. If you're the city government, you know, you'd be thinking about doing that in the public right of way. You know, a nonprofit might be trying to do that on private lands. There are lots of reasons that just jumping into something like that doesn't work. Of course, if you're trying to plant on private land, you've got to involve the the homeowners in um, putting those trees in the ground. And one of the issues there is that if you um, uh, if you're if you're putting a tree in the ground in a community that is uh, a low income community, you are um, presenting them with a future uh, burden in some ways. Right. Future, certainly future benefits, but also future burden in terms of the care and maintenance of the tree that would then fall uh, into the responsibility of, of the homeowner, right? And it can be, if anybody's ever removed a tree or had a tree pruned, you know that that's not an inexpensive task. Um, and so, so that's something to be aware of. Uh, in the public right of way or on public lands, city government or, or nonprofit organizations need to be aware that if a community does not uh, understand or accept the trees, then that is not the place to start. You don't just start digging holes and putting trees in the ground. Um, we know the, this from a really excellent study that was done in Detroit, Michigan, where there's a nonprofit organization called The Greening of Detroit. And um, these researchers from, from Michigan State looked at the rejection rates in neighborhoods across the city of Detroit, where this nonprofit was attempting to plant trees. And they found that the communities, the neighborhoods that were rejecting trees had a really, really strong, what they called heritage narrative in their neighborhood. And those narratives went something like this. Uh, You know, back in the 80s, 70s, 80s, the city government came in and they just cut down all the trees and they were doing that. So they could, they could better um, have better surveillance over our communities. Uh, The police wanted to be able to better, you know, surveil our communities and wanted to come in here and, you know, um, try to try to control our people. Right. That, that narrative, it be, it became, it was the truth to the, the neighborhood. And there may be some truth to that. There is also the, the historical understanding that the city government in Detroit was um, trying to ward off Dutch elm disease. They were removed, this was a blight that occurred in across the United States at that time. They were m- removing um, uh, elms. And you know, so so there were there was an understanding by the community of, of a motivation for the tree removal. Um, in the past, that had a really negative, um, you know, intense sort of feeling to it, right, in terms of the relationship between the community members, and the authorities, the government, and the police. So if you're a nonprofit coming in, you know, with your yellow vests on, you look like authority, right? And, and getting uh, a community to, to trust that you're there for their benefit is difficult when you have that heritage narrative in place. So, um, you know, some of the things that we know happen when communities don't accept trees, even if they're planted in the public right of way, are, are, you know, vandalism. Um, I know of multiple cases uh, in communities that I've worked in where trees have been planted and then they've been snapped off, right? Because we, we tend to plant trees that are you know one or one or 2 inch uh diameter trees so they can be broken and um and that is a you know hole in the bucket right when we lose uh those trees we're we're uh that's an expensive loss to plant a tree you know the purchase cost of the tree and then the the initial maintenance of the tree that's hundreds and hundreds of dollars and that's not something that that we want to do with public public funds And we also don't want to destroy relationships with communities, right? So one of the first things we have to do is is to to get into a community and understand where they're coming from. What is their perspective on trees? And it doesn't just, it also shouldn't just be about trees. It should be about what are your concerns? What's going on in this community that you need help with? Um, Because the next, the other issue here is if you're a marginalized community that has not been prioritized in terms of other public services like sidewalk infrastructure um, or lighting in the community. Um, then you can imagine very, very much that you might feel like, why are you coming in here with trees when I need my sidewalk to be fixed and I want my street light to work? Right. Uh, particularly if it's the government that is coming in, the city government that's coming in to try to do the tree planting. So so not only do you find out about their history, And their understanding of their relationship with authority and with trees but you've got to also pay attention to their other concerns and their other needs and if you can address those first Um, so these are some of the i think the, the best practices in the field when we're thinking about how do we enter into communities and help them increase their canopy cover and the failing has come from organizations who have felt or believed that they can go into a community and simply tell them all the great benefits of trees and then that there will be a, a wide acceptance of having trees planted there it just simply doesn't work that way we know that educating information you know information is not enough right you have to do more than that in a community and that means sometimes prioritizing things that aren't trees
0: Next, we asked Mincy to walk us through some research on trees that she has done in Monroe County. She shared a study she worked on for her dissertation on residential forests and the impact that homeowners associations and neighborhood associations have on tree canopies.
2: That study, that was um, part of my dissertation work. I I looked at a hundred different or maybe it was a few few maybe a hundred and six i think um different private residential parcels across the city of bloomington, and they um I did a complete inventory, a census of all of the trees on every parcel, so there was a summer I spent you know navigating you know some some parcels that were maybe had one large tree or what? maybe even one tiny tree, right? It was a newer development and there was no canopy covered. It was so hot. Uh, and then I'd go to another neighborhood that was like a jungle and there were hundreds of trees on, on even, you know, a quarter acre lot. It's pretty amazing. The variation that you see. Um, one of the ways that I, what I was looking at there was, is there a variation um, in the, what we, what we see in terms of, the tree canopy cover or the tree abundance or the species richness of trees um, that can be associated with differences in the kinds of people who live there or the kinds of communities that they're living in. The way I distinguish communities, I looked at homeowners associations versus neighborhood associations because I'm really interested in how policies and governance strategies kind of impact the landscape and so homeowners associations they tend to you know have the capacity to uh to enact policies that are are more enforceable across private lands versus a neighborhood association maybe they have covenants codes and restrictions but those were built you know those were created you know decades ago when the when the neighborhood was built and nobody pays attention to them anymore and there's no real authority um homeowners associations you know they have more authority it seems so one of the interesting findings of that was that we we found that um, species richness was was actually higher in neighborhood association parcels compared to homeowners association parcels. Um, and that was a significant difference. And there was there was some influence of age on that. Um, neighborhood associations tended to be a little bit older than the homeowners' associations that we looked at. And so that certainly could play play into this. But when we controlled for that, we also saw one of the factors that was significant was, was the um, ability to, to make rules in a homeowners association. And interestingly enough, homeowners associations tended to have rules that were about make sure you don't have a dead tree on your property or a dying tree on your property. You must remove those trees that, you know, unsightly trees, that kind of thing, right? Um, so there were there were rules that were sort of, um, pushing people towards removing trees. And in those circumstances, that might have been the appropriate thing to do because if it was dying, it could have posed a hazard potentially. Um, but it's interesting to see that effect where it actually decreases the, uh, species richness and the, and the abundance of trees on property on those homeowners association properties. So, um, I think it's interesting to think about the opportunity that, homeowners associations have to actually say let's increase canopy cover let's play let's require planting trees let's require increasing the species of the of the uh, trees that we have across our community right so that was that study
0: in her role at the iu research and teaching preserve mincy has been a part of research around griffey lake She shared a study that she helped conduct at Griffey which looks into deer browsing and its effect on forest systems.
2: Some of the more interesting studies I think that have gotten more attention, um, the the research in Teacher Preserve was the site of um, studies about uh, deer browsing and its effects on our forest systems. Um, We, some of the Methods there were exclosures that kept deer out of the of these plots, and so they were able to compare across dozens and dozens of plots uh, the vegetation and regeneration of vegetation within the plot and just outside of the plot where there was a control plot that was the same size, and and we see significant differences in a number of um, uh, biological. Um, factors, So they were looking at both at forest regeneration, but then um, all of the sort of other cascading effects that you would expect that if vegetation is different, then you would expect there might be also um, uh, differences in insects or mammal populations. It's, it's interesting. It helps us understand that overpopulation of deer really does have a direct impact on the future forest or lack thereof uh, that we will have in, in the Griffey area.
0: Mincy explained that because of the Inflation Reduction Act, there are currently funds available to plant trees in cities with an emphasis on communities that have been marginalized.
2: And then the last thing I just want to say is that the Inflation Reduction Act is just such a huge boon for urban forestry. We have uh, a billion dollars, over a billion dollars, is coming down from the federal government to help us uh, plant trees in cities, but to increase the equity. Of our urban forests, so the whole focus is go and and work with communities who have been marginalized to be able to grow urban forests and urban canopy cover in those communities. And so at IU at the Environmental Resilience Institute, we're, we put in a proposal to do just that across the state of Indiana. Canopy Bloomington here in in Bloomington is going to work towards putting in a proposal as well.
0: If you are listening and you have any questions about trees you would like answered, or maybe you have a few trees in your life that you want to share with others in the community, you can email us at deepdive at wfhb.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-552-3483. Again, that number is 802-552-3483. If you leave us a message about a tree, we would love to share it on a future episode of Deep Dive. Tune in next week to dive deeper and learn more about our local treats.
1: Up next, banks and double checks on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for the latest edition of Better Beware. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio
2: with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket.
3: You might want to jot down some notes at the end of today's episode, so grab some 14th century technology while I give you the big bad news right up front. Last year, government agencies say that Americans reported having been defrauded of almost $9 billion, which is a 30% surge from the year before. One of the most sophisticated and successful newer scams lets the thieves into your bank account by impersonating your bank. You get a phone call or a text message or email asking you to call on the phone from someone who says they're from your bank especially if you use a big national bank, but even smaller regional banks have been hit with this. You're told there has been a questionable transaction in your account, and they've caught it and want to find out for sure if it's a fraud. The scammer on the phone asks you to prove your identity. Sounds reassuring, doesn't it? By logging into your account. Almost all banks now use two-factor identification and will email you a one-time code number when you try to log in on their website. The person on the phone simply asks you to read back that code number to prove you're really you. A lady in Colorado who had her life savings in Chase Bank was fooled this way and all of it, 160,000 bucks, just disappeared. She filed a fraud claim but the bank denied it. To contact your bank safely always start the contact yourself. Call, text, email or go there. Even if you get a message or a call you think is legit, hang up and call back using their public number or forward the message to their public address and ask if it's really them. And here's the info you might want to write down. Scammers are adept at creating fake websites to steal your money. Some of them can install malware, even ransomware, on your computer as soon as you go there. Links to fake websites show up in emails, text messages, and can be inserted into legitimate websites. Before you click a link, you can check it out. There are now several websites that'll do that if you copy the link and paste it in. You can find them easily with a quick search for link checker websites, but here are some trustworthy ones. Ready to write? Norton Safe Web. Safeweb.norton.com is very good. So is ScanURL. That's S C A N U R L.net. Then there's Fish Tank, dedicated to foiling scammers who steal your identity which is why it's spelled with a P-H, P-H-I-S-H-T-A-N-K, fishtank.com. There's another site called Virustotal, all one word, virustotal.com, which not only checks a link, but reports bad ones to authorities. Check before you click. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs